would, take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. Our text presents us with numerous questions. And it brings up the question, have you ever been questioned? And most of you would have to say, yes, I've been questioned in some way or another. Uh, For you, it might have been that as a child, you did something wrong. And your parents caught you and they brought you into their room. And they asked you a series of questions trying to get to the bottom of that little conflict that you had with your siblings. And trying to find out exactly who it was that instigated this conflict and who began the bickering that led to the hitting that led to more bickering. Right? That happens. Or it could be that you're the parents and you're the one that is doing the questioning. I remember one time I was in Ghana and I was questioned by a drunk man. This drunk man came up to our church right after we'd done have been done doing Sunday school with a youth group. My dad was the youth group Sunday school teacher at that time. Somebody else was teaching the adult class and my dad was teaching us uh, young people. And this drunk guy came up, we had an outdoor Sunday school area, and he sees me and he goes, your name's David, right? I said, yeah, my name's David. Looks at my dad, he goes, his name's Pastor Dan? He goes, yeah, that's my dad's name. My dad's name is Dan. And he's like, no, that can't possibly be. And I'm like, that's truly what it is. So my dad's name is Dan, and my name is David, and that's how it's always been. He goes, no, no. How could you, the son, be named David and your dad not be named Jesse? Because in the Bible... David's dad's name was Jesse. And so you possibly can't have the dad named Dan because that's not biblical. And this drunk guy just kept going over and over. And I'm like, his name's Dan. My name's David. That's the end of the story. I never convinced him. Eventually he left because he was drunk. But we've all been questioned. And in our text today, we're going to see that people ask numerous questions. You're going to see the disciples asking Jesus questions. Then you're going to see the religious leaders of the day asking numerous questions of this blind man that is miraculously healed. They ask his parents questions. They ask the blind man questions again. And then Jesus comes and asks the blind man a question. And then the Pharisees ask Jesus a question. Just lots and lots of questions, just one after another almost, throughout this whole text. And the big idea is true worship proceeds from genuine faith. True worship proceeds from genuine faith. And so if you and I want to truly worship God, not only on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday, but if we want to live a life that is full of worship, we have to be assured that we have placed our faith truly in Jesus Christ's finished work on our behalf. And that is what the evangelist is trying to communicate to us through this story. And he begins with the sign. And the sign is one of the miracles that points to who Jesus' true identity is. We've seen a number of these already. We've seen Jesus turning the water into wine. We've seen Jesus and the bread that he made. We've seen a number of signs. There are about seven of them. And then there are seven I am statements that are in the book of John. And so we get once again to the sign, and then after the sign comes an explanation and a discussion that stems from this sign. If this sign points to who Jesus is, 
how are we going to respond to who Jesus is? Are we going to respond in saving faith to Jesus Christ, or are we going to reject him? And we're going to see both responses once again. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, the disciples questioned Jesus about trials. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. So this is after the Feast of Tabernacles, but it's not more than three months later, but it's sometime between a day later and three months later. He's walking by, seems like he's in Jerusalem from the story, and he sees a blind man on the side of the road. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The, the, the disciples had a common view of trials. And the common view that day was, if you are experiencing a trial in your life, it is because you have in some way offended a holy God. And so, who sinned, God? Or who sinned, Jesus? Was it, was it this man that he sinned sometime while he was in the womb? You know, he kicked his mom a little too hard while she was uh, carrying him, so her. Or maybe his parents sinned in some way, and that has caused him to be blind his entire life. Who sinned? Jesus explains the purpose of this man's trial. Verse 3, Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Jesus says, The purpose of this man's trial is that I would reveal myself and God's work through him. If this man wasn't born blind, I could not heal him. If I could not heal him, then you would have a less understanding of so this particular man's trial is for the express purpose that I would reveal myself to the world as the Savior, as the light of the world. And picking up on chapter 8, very, very beautiful. We'll see that Jesus actually begins to use the same type of terminology that he used in chapter 8. He's going to once again say, I am the light of the world. And so Jesus isn't saying that sometimes we don't face trials because of sin. Sometimes we do. Jesus is saying that's not always the case, and that's not the case in this man's life. This man is experiencing this blindness from birth because God wants to reveal his work through him. Verses 4 through 5, Jesus explains his mission. He is the light of the world. Verse 4, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus says that they have to be busy about doing this mission, uh, uh, showing his works to the world, because he is the only light. Yes, they, they've just gone through the Feast of Tabernacles, and they've lit up all the lights, celebrating the Jewish nation and the light that God provided them. But Jesus says none of that is sufficient. None of that is what the world truly needs. I am what the world truly needs, and we've got to be busy about doing my mission. So then Jesus illustrates that he is the light of the world. He gives this man his sight back, so he's able to see light. Verses 6 through 7. When he had said these things, it's like he's had this conversation with the disciples. The guy's on the side of the road, and he's probably overhearing some of this conversation. And like, oh, again, these people assume that I did something or my parents did something, and that's why I'm in this situation. That's why I'm in this predicament. sent these things. He spat on the ground and made clay. The 
dried up. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay. Kind of gross. Maybe a lot gross. But he anoints this guy's eyes with a saliva and mud mixture. And he said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. It, it's almost like he's picking up on what he said his mission was, right? Who's the sent one? also picks up on the symbolism from the living water. So he's picking up on a lot of the symbolism that we've already gone over in chapter 7 and chapter 8. And he tells this guy, go there, wash. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The man receives his sight. Jesus demonstrates physically that he is the light of the world. But the guy doesn't understand what's happened. He doesn't understand that Jesus is demonstrating that there is a significant that Jesus has not only to provide for his physical sight but his spiritual sight. And we're going to see that as this man interacts with different people and he answers different questions and responds to various questions, that as he does this, he's going to slowly move along from somebody who is just a pedestrian to someone who is a true genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. And so we get to now the second question that comes up and his neighbors are shocked by his sight verses 8 through 9 therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said is not this he that he sat and begged some said this is he others said he is like him he said i am he so he gets home and his neighbors see him and they're like man that guy looks really familiar isn't he the guy that's been born blind like We've known him for many, many years as a blind guy. He's completely useless to society. He just goes and begs all day. Isn't that him? And then someone like, no. It just looks like him. It's like a close cousin or something. But there's no way that that guy now sees because he was born that way. And nobody ever gets their sight after they're born blind back in the ancient days. This is 2,000 years ago before any medical advancements. Like, no, it's not possibly him. It just looks like him. And then like, no, it's definitely him. And the guy's sitting there kind of like, yep, it's, it's me. And so after he professes that, yeah, I'm the guy that was blind, but now I see, it leads to the question, his neighbor's question in verses 9 through 10. Some said, um, sorry, verse 10, therefore they said to him, how were your eyes opened? How did this come about? You were a blind man, but now you see how, how? And the man explains Jesus' actions in verses 11 through 12. And note, note what he thinks about Jesus. Who is Jesus to this man that was made well? Who is he? Verse 11, he answered and said, a man called Jesus. He is simply a man. And he's called Jesus, made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. Then they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. I was blind. He sent me to the pool. I went to the pool. I got washed. I came back home seen. I don't know what happened to this guy. All I know is that a man named Jesus met me, anointed me with spit and mud, told me to go wash, and now I can see. That's all I know. This is a nice guy, but he's just a guy. And so then you have 
an interrogation by the Pharisees. And you're going to see that the Pharisees ask three different people or three different times how this came about. Verse 13. The first interrogation of the healed man is in verses 13 through 17. And the neighbors bring the man to the Pharisees in verse 13. They, this is the people that have just found that their neighbor can now see, and they ask him how, and he goes, I don't know. I don't know where he is. All I know is this is what happened. And you shouldn't really think that the neighbors necessarily were like vile, evil people trying to get this man thrown out of the synagogue. I don't think that's the situation. They're just like, wow, this is truly marvelous. This is truly miraculous. We should take this to the religious leaders to see what they have to say about the situation because nobody's ever heard of such a thing happening, that a blind man would become one who sees. This is truly marvelous. Let's go to the religious leaders. Verse 13, they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees, and Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. So the author inserts a little uh, commentary on the situation before we actually start the conversation with the Pharisees or uh, with the Pharisees and the blind man that was healed. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And all of a sudden, if you've been with us throughout this entire series, you know that the word Sabbath comes up. We have a problem because one does not heal somebody unless it's like an emergency situation on the Sabbath. Because that's, that's breaking the law. But the Pharisees also believed that kneading, you know, like when you knead bread, that was breaking the law as well. And in fact, they went so far in their understanding of what was breaking the law that to spit on the ground and then to knead the spit in the mud was actually kneading as well. And so that was work. You couldn't work on the Sabbath. So this guy's broken the Sabbath. We, we know that from what we know. He kneaded the saliva and mud mixture. And so we're going to have problems with the Pharisees. We just know that. Verse 15 through 16. The, the Pharisees respond to it, and it's kind of a hot take. Like, they hear the situation, and they just kind of take their initial responses, and their responses are kind of all over the board, verses 15 through 16. Then the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. So how did the Pharisees respond? There's two different, very drastically different responses among the Pharisees. Verse 16, Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. How dare he need saliva and mud on the Sabbath? How dare he? He worked. And nobody that's good could possibly work. I mean, that's a lot of work to, you know, use two fingers and like mix some saliva up together with some mud. He can't possibly be a good guy. And then the other group said, others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? How can somebody who is an evil person do something so marvelous and so so good and kind to a man who is born blind and has been blind from his birth? And so there's varied responses, and some think he's an evil person, and some think he's a good person. And there was a division among them. So they turn to the healed man, and they ask him what he thinks. So what do you think? Verse 17. Then they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes. And once again, we're going to see with this question, the man who was born blind, who has been healed, his understanding of who Jesus is is growing. What does he say who Jesus is in verse 17? He is a prophet. So 
growing. And we should note that. Note his growing knowledge of Jesus. He, he's a prophet. He's gone from when he's interrogated by his neighbors to saying, a man called Jesus, to when the Pharisees, he listens to the Pharisees debate among themselves about who Jesus is. It's like, yeah, that makes sense. He's not a sinner. If he's not a sinner, he's somebody's good. And if he's somebody's good, he's, he's got to be a prophet. He's a good guy. Definitely a good guy. He, he made me see. I could have never seen. And it's hard for us to really, I think, imagine just what a life like this would have been like. I mean, nowadays, if you're born blind, you can learn to read with Braille. They have special schools for people to go to. You can function fairly normally. There are, there are blind pastors, you know I mean? Like, you can have a fairly normal life. You can have a good job as a blind person. I'm not saying it's easy. That's not what I'm saying at all. But this guy was stuck to the lowest rung of society, and there was no hope for him to get out of it. He just sat there and begged all day. That would have been his whole life, his entire life. Just sat there and begged all day. And, and so he proclaims Jesus not simply a man, but a prophet. And the Pharisees are insufficiently informed and they also reject the information they've received. So they call in the man's parents, and they interrogate the man's parents in verses 18 through 23. Verses 18 through 19, we find out that they're doubting the man who was born blind. And so they interrogate his parents, verses 18 and 19. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called her the parents of him who had received his sight. So they didn't believe him. You know, you really don't remember very well. You see, you're a blind person, and you're on the bottom rung of society, so you're probably not very bright either. And there's probably some sort of sin in your life, so you probably don't really remember, but you probably weren't born blind. Something accidentally happened to you in your young age, and or maybe you're not even the actual blind person. Maybe you never were blind. But you misunderstand the situation, so let's call in your parents, and they'll be able to tell us, this guy wasn't born blind. He's lying to you. And so they call in the parents, and the parents inform them that, indeed, he was born blind. And they ask them, verse 19, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? So there's really three questions. This is your son. Was he born blind? And then how then does he now see? Is this your son? Was he born blind? How did he become a person who can see now? And they note a miracle, but avoid, avoid the final question. So they answer, yes, he is our son, and yes, he was born blind. But as to the last question, how he came to a point where he could see, uh, we're going to avoid that question. Verses 20 through 21. His parents answered and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age. He's of legal age to answer in a court of law. Um, go and talk to him. We don't want to be involved in this situation anymore. He can answer the first two questions, but for the third question, how this all came about, go talk to him because we don't want to get involved. He is of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. And then we learn why the parents come to the question back to their son. Why do they not want to be involved in their son's life? 
is because they're afraid that the Pharisees will kick them out of the synagogue. Verses 22 through 23. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So they pumped the question. They're like, you know, we're going to answer the first two questions, but anything that could begin to point to the truth of the situation, that Jesus Christ healed this man, we're not going to comment on that because we really like being a part of the synagogue and the religious system that's going on here. And we know that if we begin to go there, you're going to kick us out. And so go talk to our son. He's of age. He'll answer for himself. And so then they come and they interrogate the healed man for the second time in verses 24 through 34. The Pharisees begin by proclaiming Jesus a sinner in verses 24 through 25. So they called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. And, and so they call him in and they say, We know that you're lying. Jesus possibly could not have healed could not possibly have healed you on the Sabbath with mud. That doesn't happen. Quit lying. We know this guy's a sinner. So just declare it for us all to hear. And then verse 25, the man answers them. He said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. And so the man refuses to proclaim Jesus a sinner. And then in verses 25 through 27, the Pharisees continue their questioning. He Sorry, verses 26 through 27. And they said to him, again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I mean, this is the same questions that they've just asked him. He answered those questions. And it's almost like they're trying to trick him up in a court of law. You know, like, maybe he'll give a slightly different answer, and then we can, like, pin him with that. And what does he answer? He says, he answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? He's really jabbing at them, right? Like, he turns their question around and he asks them a question. And he asks them, do you want to become his disciples? Two, implying that he is now a disciple of Jesus. And so once again, we note the growing knowledge and the growing faith of this man. He considers himself a disciple. He is following after Jesus. He wants to please Jesus. He wants to become more like Jesus. He wants to live a life that honors and glorifies God the Father. And so he's pursuing Jesus. And he notes that these people are not pursuing that motive. Their desire is to tear down Jesus. And so he jabs at them and says, you want to be his disciples too? And that does not go over very well. Because in verses 28 through 29, the Pharisees insult him, claiming Moses as the person who they are the disciples of. Then they reviled him or insulted him and said, You are his disciple, but we, we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow... 
we do not know where he is from. It's really interesting. Remember earlier they, you know, talked about where Jesus is from? And Jesus has told them that they don't know where he's from, even though they claim that they know where he's from. And Jesus has told them where he's from. And yet they still reject Jesus' claims to a heavenly origin. And they claim that they are the disciples of Moses. And the man who was healed is awed by the Pharisees' lack of faith in verses 30 through 33. And so he responds to their comment. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. You don't know where he is from, according to your own confession. And yet he's done something truly marvelous. He's made me see. And why is it truly marvelous? Verse 31. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. He says, God doesn't respond to the requests of sinners. He responds to those who are righteous before him. And so if this man wanted me to see and he made me see, he must be a righteous person. Verse 32, since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. And so he's pointing to the truly marvelous nature of this healing. That God has healed someone who was born blind and nobody in the creation of the world has ever heard of somebody being healed in this manner. And the response of the Pharisees is they accuse the man of sin and he is cast out of the synagogue in verse 34. They answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. They completely reject the man's message and they reject Jesus as well. They accuse Jesus of being a sinner instead of the Son of God. They 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 claim that they don't know the origin of God, even though or the origin of Jesus, even though God He has proclaimed that He is from the Father numerous times throughout this interchanges with the Pharisees and the other Jews. And they reject this man, claiming the same thing that the disciples of Jesus begin with. Who sinned? This guy or his parents? And Jesus corrects them and says, no, it's so that I could glorify myself and glorify the Father through healing him and bring him to saving faith and true knowledge and worship of me. And the Pharisees don't get it, and they reject this man. They reject the Savior's message. They reject the Messiah. Sight and blindness explained by Jesus. So this man has been kicked out of the temple, and after he's tempted, kicked out of the temple then Jesus goes up to the man and questions the man verse 35 Jesus heard that they had cast him out and when he had found him he said to him do you believe in the son of man and if you remember Daniel 7 verses 13 through 14 is one of the big passages in the scriptures that talk about the son of man and so when Jews heard the terminology, son of man, it was just like, whoa, 
that's that's a reference to God. That's not a reference to any type of man because the the language that is presented in Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14 is so marvelous that it cannot refer to any man. It has to refer to God. And he goes up to him and he asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man's openness to believing points once again to his growing knowledge and his growing desire to come into a relationship with God. His response in verse 36, he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And the, the, the word Lord actually um, can mean different things, okay? Um, this word for Lord in verse 36 is actually more like the idea of sir. Okay, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? We're going to see he uses the same word Lord a little bit later, and that word is going to be a profession of Jesus' deity. But in Ghana, they would use the word uh, Mirla, which means my Lord. And a wife would use that in a referential term to her husband as a term of respect. My my Lord, okay? That's what she would call her husband, sir. Okay? But there's a completely different reference to when you call your husband a respectful term like my Lord and when you talk about Jesus Christ. And it was the same thing in this time. So when he refers to him here, it's more like the terminology, sir, and then he's going to use it again. And when he uses it the second time, it's a demonstration of his faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the king of kings. Okay. So right here, he's just he's just interacting with him in a, in a, a respectful manner. And then verses 37 through 38, Jesus reveals himself in his worship. And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him. And it is he who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, that is the different use of Lord. That is the one that demonstrates that he understands completely and fully who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the king. He is God. And he says, I believe. He placed his faith in him wholeheartedly. And so once again, we see that this man's faith in Jesus is growing. It is maturing. And what does he do after he says he believes? And he worships him. If you and I want to be people who truly live lives that are honoring to God, that are truly lives that are full of worship and reverence and awe of God, it must be preceded by a true understanding of who Jesus is. That he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the anointed one that God sent into the world who lived a sinless, perfect life, that went to the cross, died on our behalf. He was buried. He stayed in the grave for three days, and then he rose again victoriously over sin and death. So that when we look to him and say, I am incapable of living a life that honors and glorifies God on my own because I am a sinful person, I am in need of you and you alone, then we can truly change the way that we are living our lives and live a life that is honoring to God and is worshiping God in every area of our life, not only when we come to church, but how we act when we go to work, how we interact with our children, how we interact with our parents when our parents uh, tell us to do something and we can interact with them and honor them and respect them. 
so he worships God, and his worship, I believe, continued on. And then in verse 39, Jesus reveals his purpose. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into the world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. And Jesus is actually making a jab once again at the Pharisees. The Pharisees thought that they were so good because they could see. They had the law. They understood the law. They were the legal people of their day. They understood the law. They understood that not working meant not needing to spit with mud. They had it all figured out. And Jesus says, you think that you see. And because of that, you are blinded to the fact that you are in need of me. Jesus says, if you were not blinded by your own hypocrisy and thought that you were sufficient on your own, then you would be blind. And because you're blind, then I could come in and I could help you to see the truth and see me for all I am. But because you are believing that you are sufficient in your knowledge of the law, you're blind. And because of that, Pharisees get it. And they question Jesus on their blindness. Verses 40 through 41. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and they said to him, Are we blind also? Because this sounded like you're kind of jabbing at us a little bit. Like you're kind of like directing those words at us because, you know, we see pretty clearly. We know that you can't mix saliva and mud. Are you talking about us? What does Jesus say in verse 41? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see. We know the law. We know how to interpret it. And because you say we see, therefore your sin remains. You're unwilling to come before Christ and confess your sin and acknowledge that you are sinful and that you are in need of Christ and his finished work. And because of that, you remain in your sin. And the danger is that we would come and that we would do the same thing. That we would, we would elevate ourselves and think that we're okay. That we're not as bad as our next door neighbor because we don't do dot, dot, dot. We've come to church this morning, so we're pretty good. I put a check in the offering plate, so I'm pretty good. Now those are all good things. But all those things, if you're depending on those, the same words that Jesus used to rebuke the Pharisees and said, you think that you see because you think that you can do all these things and by doing all these things you can earn righteousness and earn a place with me. Because of all that, you're actually blind and I have to judge you. Jesus and the evangelist John wants us to come before Jesus realizing our sinfulness, our depravity, our inability to please God, and as we do so, to place our faith wholly and unreservedly in Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross. And as we do that, after we do that, only then can we come before Jesus and live a life that is truly honoring and glorifying to him and is actually one that is full of worship. 
What does John want us to do? He wants us to come to Jesus as saving faith. He wants us to acknowledge our sinfulness. He wants us to see that we are incapable in our own human endeavors to ever please God. And that Jesus has paid the sacrifice. He's died for our sins. Place our faith in him and him alone. That's what John wants us to do. And after we do that, only then are we able to live a life of worship. Only then are you able to go to work and work hard and fully honor God and fully fulfill your purpose. Only then are you able to interact with your family and and care for your family and respond in difficult situations in your family's life in a way that is honoring and glorifying to God. Only then are you able to respond to temptations to be angry and respond in a way that is honoring and glorifying to God. Only then are we able to serve within the local church context in a way that is honoring and worshipful to God and is actually serving and equipping and helping other believers become more like Jesus. And that's what John wants. John wants us to realize we are unable to please God in our own ability, to come to Christ unreservedly, place our faith in him and him alone. And as we do that, we are able to worship Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is true, that it is faithful, and that it is trustworthy. We pray that if there are people here who have not placed their faith in you and you alone, that they would see their need and that they would be willing to do so soon. We pray that as we examine your word, that we would see areas in our lives where we all are failing to worship you as we should. We pray that as we see those areas of sin, whether they be uh, areas of lust or whether they be areas of laziness or other areas of sin that are present in our lives, that as we see those areas that we would be willing to look to you and your finished work on our behalf and that we would be able to be uh, people who are truly worshiping you, not just on a Sunday morning and singing songs and listening to your word preached, but living lives that are pleasing and glorifying to you. In your name we pray. Amen. If you would take your hymnals and turn.